Wow, that's a pretty ominous title package. I promise not to scare you. You know, we're gonna uh, we're gonna delve into uh, Mark chapter two, a story of Jesus' interaction with uh, a new convert by the name of Matthew, also called Levi, and his friends who were not highly regarded. And we're talking about this, not that. You know, how do we deal with people that have fallen out of favor? Uh, how does the world deal with them? How do we even deal with them in our own human? Reasoning. How do we deal with ourselves when we fall out of favor with God? And, and how would God deal with that? This, not that. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all the assembled prove acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. It's an important series because uh, we are people who live in the world, and God has not asked us to come out of the world. In fact, we are to be a light to the world. We're to be an influence in the world. We're to let our light so shine, uh, live with our values in the world, and, and know that those values will also be respected because everybody in the, in the end is really God's child, and they have, uh, they have this uh, God-ordained way of looking at things that, that when they hear his truth, they respond to it. It's just the nature of uh, a child who recognizes a father, even though up until then they haven't called him father. I believe that that's true about every person. That's why the truth of God resonates even with those who are far from him. Now, they don't always immediately embrace it. Sometimes they fight against it, but that's the nature of a child uh, who resists what they know to be true when a parent speaks it as well. In fact, Jesus said in his uh, last words to his disciples uh, in the upper room on Monday, Thursday, before he was arrested that night in the garden, he prayed a prayer to his father saying, my prayer is not that you would take my beloved disciples out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil in the world. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Protect them with the truth. Your word is truth. And it's not just the, the, the nasty world or the, or the painful world that we live in. It's also our own sinful human nature that we have to resist and, and say, what would God have us think rather than what humanly we think? Because I think on this subject, uh, there's something about human nature that always anticipates and I would say even embraces criticism. You know, we're all a bit insecure about whatever it is that we're doing, whether it's our work or whether it's our parenting, whether it's our uh, relationship with our spouse or, or even our sense of what could be done versus what we're able to accomplish. You know, we're, we're always feeling that, you know, it could be better, and we, and we focus a lot on criticism. In fact, uh, we tend to own negativity more than we own compliments. That's true of me. I believe that that's human nature, and that's probably true of you as well. You know, if, if somebody writes a letter and they have one thing in that letter that says, you know, I wish you would have done this instead of that, and then they write four pages of all the awesome things that you did, it's that one thing that you go back to. In fact, we tend uh, in human nature to dismiss even compliments. Uh, last week, I had a, a fellow came down the aisle, and he wanted to talk to me about something, set up an opportunity to talk, and, and he said, uh, I just really appreciate you. I, I've, I've benefited from the teaching here, uh, even in my business practice, certainly in my personal life, and he said, you just have a way. God has really blessed you to communicate, and I, I said, yeah, I, you know, I, I struggle with that, and he says, just say thank you, you know. <laughs> 
How many times have you uh, dismissed a compliment? You know, it's hard to receive a compliment sometimes. And we notice flaws. You know, that's, that's true in your home. You know, everything could be wonderful about your home, but your eye goes to that one thing that's not right, that nick on the wall, you know, that, that spot on the floor, whatever it is. Everything else could be great. In fact, I guarantee you, if you have a nice sweater and, and you snag the sweater, what do you do with it? You set it aside, you give it to, you know, some charity, you never wear it again. There's nothing wrong with the sweater. It still functions quite well, but it's snagged. It has a flaw. Our eye goes to the flaw rather than that which is good, that which is um, uh, complete. And uh, this attitude gets reinforced uh, by those we love and, and by others very early in life. Uh, I have put on the big screen behind me uh, copies of my grade school progress reports. You know, I, I haven't had these. I don't study these often, but uh, uh, my mom uh, died. My dad died a number of years ago. My mom died last year, and, and my sisters, my older sisters, went through all of her things, and they kept all the wonderful pictures, and they sent me those that I was only in, and, uh, and, and my report cards, which mom happened to keep. I'm not sure why, but it's interesting because, but, no, let's go back one more. Because between fifth grade, when I had uh, uh, Bernita Schmalsried, Mrs. Schmalsried, uh, she was a wonderful teacher, and I was the apple of her eye. She doted on me, and I was a great student for her, uh, and that was fifth grade. But my sisters and brothers who were older than me, I had one brother older, two sisters older, uh, they said, wait till next year, Steve, when you get Mr. Heinze, you know, Paul Heinze. And he just came to our school uh, that year that I was in fifth grade, and uh, they said, you're in for a rude awakening. And so the next year I did have uh, Paul Heinze, and this is what my report card looked like for Mrs. Smallstreet. Let's look at it. There it is. Notice over here the attitudes. Nothing really wrong. You only check these boxes if you have a problem with your student. And, and we had no problems. She and I, we were tight. And, uh, and over here, you know, all A's, maybe a B plus in, in uh, arithmetic. They were doing that new math thing, and I was struggling to understand that. But, but all A's, she probably gave me better grades than I even deserved. Then the next year, I went into sixth grade with Mr. Heinze. Now, Mr. Heinze and the attitude marks over here, he not only checked a few boxes, he actually outlined the boxes. He wanted my folks to know that there were some issues, you know, uh, uh, about observance of health rules, safety rules, about courtesy, you know, about self-control. I can't imagine that he thought I had self-control issues. <laughs> or completion of assignments. I mean, seriously, he wanted me to do my homework? And, and then over here, it was interesting because I was a left-hander. I'm still a left-hander. And uh, he was going to change me. He was going to make me a right-hander. And so he gave me Ds in handwriting throughout. Now, I, I did still make a few A's and some better grades, not nearly the grades I made under Mr. Smallstreet. And what do you think my folks focused on? Now, Mr. Heinze was not a bad guy, but I'm telling you, this did not go well. You know, your folks don't come home and talk about your A's. When you come home, your folks are going to talk about your C's or your B's, or in some cases for you, even your A minuses. Now, uh, Paul Heinze wasn't a bad guy. In fact, he did a lot of wonderful things for me. And, and uh, after grade school, then I went on to high school, of course, and I went on to college. And I even went on to the seminary. And he was in uh, some of his last years of teaching at my school when I was ordained. And he came to my ordination service uh, after all of that other schooling. And uh, he came up, and uh, I was really honored to have him there. He was a figure that I respected. 
Interesting that I still remember these report cards. Even 50 years later, I still remember these report cards. And when I was thinking of illustrating this message, went right to my report cards. You know, he showed up and he said, uh, congratulations, Pastor Howard. And I said, well, thank you, Mr. Heinze. He says, call me Paul. And I said, okay, Mr. Heinze. You know, <laughs> it's just like couldn't bring myself to do that, you know. And, and, and that will wear on you, you know, because we're attracted to, we tend to hang on to critical remarks that other people make. Is that God's way? And it doesn't just happen in grade school. It happens also when you get to the workplace. In fact, negativity is often reinforced in the workplace. Uh, I read an article from Forbes magazine by a man named Eric Jackson, and this is what he wrote. In the world of organizational life, there's no single discussion that causes so much fear and dread on the boss's side and so much anger and resentment on the direct reports side as the performance review. How many of you submit to performance reviews? How many of you do performance reviews? It's not a pleasant thing typically in our society. And what do you tend to focus on? You tend to focus on those things that need improving. In fact, I've got to the place where I say to my uh, direct reports, please fill out your own performance reviews because I know this about people. You know, we tend to focus on the negative even on ourselves. So they will come in with all kinds of negativity and all kinds of failure, you know, all over their performance review. And then I can say, oh, no, you're better than that. Not a lot better, but a little better than that, you know. And, and, you know, to just be positive. Because we know that it's true that uh, your attitude, not your aptitude, determines your altitude. Your aptitude, your attitudes Determine your altitude, not your abilities. You know, I would rather have a person whose heart is in it, who's totally focused on what it is they're trying to do, than have an expert whose heart isn't in it. That person will create no end of trouble for you. Well, this is our nature to focus on those things that are, that are wrong, those things that are inadequate. Uh, how did Jesus deal with that, and how did his culture deal with that? We're going to look at Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. Here we go. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, not the jeans guy, this is Matthew, uh, Matthew the, the tax collector, uh, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him. Well, duh, these were birds of a feather, you know, flocked together. Uh, the way tax collecting worked in Jesus' time was that uh, people who wanted to become tax collectors bid for Rome the privilege of collecting tax for the city of Baldwin, the city of Ellisville. And they guaranteed a certain amount. And, of course, Rome would give the contract to the people who guaranteed the most money, right? And then so they would try to figure out how much money will it take for me to get the job. And then they would add a surtax on top of that so they could make some money. So the people hated them. Because they knew how the system worked and they thought they were gouging them just to please Rome and to get the job. So he had other sinners, other tax collectors with him because no one liked them. They wouldn't have them in their house. And his disciples, uh, uh, for there were many who followed him, many who followed Matthew. Uh, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, you know, the religious leaders, saw Jesus eating with the sinners and the tax collectors... They ask his disciples, so how can he be a rabbi if he eats with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, shouldn't he be 
despising them? Shouldn't he be judging them? Shouldn't he be making them feel the error of their ways? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. Interesting metaphor. He thinks of himself as a physician, somebody healing those who are sick. But rather the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. You know, denying themselves uh, food during the day, typically as a Jewish fast, to remind themselves to be spiritually focused. Uh, Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and even the Pharisees and their disciples fast, but yours do not? It's a sign of religious commitment. Jesus said, how can the guest of the bridegroom fast when there's a party going on, you know, when he's with them? They cannot So as long as he is with them, they won't fast. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast again. No one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. You don't sew a new patch on an old garment. Otherwise, when it begins to shrink, the other's already shrunk, it will pull away from the old, tear the stitches, and make the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into an old wineskin. Otherwise, the wine that's new, when it begins to ferment, expands. If the skin is fresh, it will expand with the wine, and then it'll uh, uh, retract, and then it'll become hard. But if you put new wine in there, it'll burst the skin, and both the wine and the wineskin will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins to allow the process to take place. Uh, That ends the text. Let's look at a few points that we can make from this text. Uh, First of all, uh, the first step towards health, if we use Jesus' metaphor, uh, is diagnosis. You know, Jesus said, I'm the physician. The physician comes for the sick, not for the well. The first step towards health is diagnosis. Jesus was not in denial. He was not saying these people aren't as bad as you think. He recognized they were sinners. Truly, you know, their life was not in line with God's will, and there were reasons why people rejected them. But Jesus went to the sick precisely because they were sick. There are many examples in the Bible where Jesus dealt with sinful people. He didn't excuse their sin. He didn't tell them that their sin didn't matter. In fact, we all know that when we uh, get off track from God's way, when we get off the narrow path, we bring pain into other people's lives, we bring pain into our lives, and we dishonor the Lord. You know, he cares about that because he cares about us, just as you care about your children. You don't punish them to make them pay for their sin. And, you know, you sit them in time out, you have a talk with them because you want them to choose a path that's going to prosper them and bless them. And that's the way Jesus felt about it. You know, when uh, he met that woman who was at the well drawing water, you know, he pointed out her sin. He said, you're right to say you're not married. You've been married five times. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. Your life is a mess of relationships. You know, he didn't dismiss her and and send her away and reject her like the Pharisees and like his own disciples were who were shocked to see him talking to her. You know, but he nevertheless uh, spoke to her issue, not because it was so important for her to be accepted by him. He accepted her just as she was but because he cared too much to let her live in her sin. And that's how he deals with us as well. Remember Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he down in Jericho. 
you know, he was also a tax collector. Uh, he was rejected by the people, not honored. And yet he was drawn to Jesus too. You know, he, he was drawn to that which is positive, that which is making a difference. And he thought, you know, maybe I can learn something from him. And he ran down the street, climbed up in a tree to see the Lord. And when the Lord got there, he said, come down, Zacchaeus, for I will eat at your house today. How shocking. You're going to eat at my house? You're going to come to Levi's party where all those other tax collectors are? That's the nature of Jesus. He went to the sick because they were sick. And the result of him being in Zacchaeus' house that day, well, it's said in Zacchaeus' own words. He said, look, Lord, I will give half of all my possessions to the poor. You know, he was looking for a way back. And he goes, and if I've cheated anyone, and of course, you know, I have, I'll repay them four times whatever I've taken from them. And Jesus was pleased. You know, the health had been restored, you know, to a sick person. He said, uh, today's salvation has come to this house. For this man, too, is a son of Abraham. You know, Jesus was glad to see him reunited. The first step towards health is diagnosis. And then secondly, sick people need hope. It's just the important element of, of getting well. Uh, sick people need Hope. I know they do. It's on here somewhere. It's going to show up. By his presence, Jesus was demonstrating acceptance of those who were far from God. He was giving them what they needed. I don't know if you've seen the movie about Louis uh, Zamperini. Have you seen it? Called Unbroken. You know, I read the book a number of years ago, and they finally made a movie about it. And, And what was interesting about this movie is that before the movie came out, um, Tom Brokaw, who, who, you know, wrote The Greatest Generation, has been fascinated by World War II. Uh, he went and did an interview for NBC News. And he interviewed Zamperini, uh, who was still alive at the time. He died right before the release of the movie. Uh, although God was gracious and allowed him to see a, an early cut of the movie before he died. Uh, and uh, he went and interviewed him. And he, and he said to him in the interview, I was fascinated by the interview, He said, was there ever a moment in all the ordeals that you endured? And believe me, he could have died more than once, not just from the Japanese abuses, but even before that. He said, was there ever a moment when you said to yourself, this may be it. I may not, and Zamperini was already shaking his head, you know, in anticipating his answer, that I may not survive. He said, no, never. Never. He never lacked hope. Hope is what pulls you through. The difficulty. It's what God grants to those who are struggling with their own inadequacies or the criticisms of others. This, not that. This is God's way to provide hope. In fact, in that interview, uh, Brokaw went and interviewed another person who had even been in a prison camp in the Japanese territories for longer than Zamperini, who was in there for a couple of years. He said uh, to him, he said, uh, was there ever uh, anything different between the survivors and those people who succumb? Could you tell by talking to a man if he had the right stuff? And that guy that he interviewed said, absolutely. Those who complained and felt sorry for themselves, they had zero chance to survive. But those who were actively trying to figure things out, what could be done to make things better? These guys had a fighting chance. Hope. Where are you in life? You know, have, have you suffered some setbacks? Have you suffered some unfair criticism? Have you taken that deeply to heart? Have you allowed somebody else to define you 
by their negative perception of you or by your own human nature that focuses on what's wrong rather than the upside of what's right? Do you still recall your sixth grade report card from your principal, you know, who marked you down in character qualities? Do you know what Jesus has done for you? Do you understand the power of this story and why it's included? Jesus didn't care what other people would think of him. He didn't care how these people were labeled. He did care about the negativity that they carried in his life. And he wanted to give them hope. Jesus died for that reason. He has paid for your sins. He has assured you that you have access to God's throne in heaven through prayer that will be answered because you are his child. He paid a price for you. To not believe that is to dismiss the crucifixion. It's to dismiss the suffering that he endured for you. And who would do that to the insult of their Savior? In fact, if Jesus were here today and and after service he was going to go home uh, to lunch with somebody, you might assume that he would want to go home to lunch with the pastor, but he would say, sorry, Steve, there are other people who need me more than you do. And he would go home with you. Jesus came because the sick need hope. And then it takes a twist. It talks about fasting because health requires vigilance. You know, once you have hope, once you see yourself as the Lord sees you, then vigilance is required. Faithful people, John's disciples and the Pharisees, began to fast for a reason. Now, the Pharisees fasted for the wrong reason. They fasted as a a show of religiosity. You know, they bragged about their fasting. You know, Jesus said, when you fast, don't wear a long face. You know, don't go around and waiting for people to say, you know, why are you so sad? Well, I'm fasting. You know, I'm dealing with some religious issues. You know, know, that's not what fasting is all about. There's no particular value in fasting. You know, to deny yourself anything, as often Christians do during Lent or, or during a season. You know, we do that not to have a show of religiosity, but to remind us every time we feel a hunger pain. Oh, that's right. I'm in a season of prayer. You know, I'm trying to focus on something. I'm trying to discern God's will for my life in this matter or that matter. It's just a practical means by which we are reminded of a spiritual issue. Healthy Christians, you know, who want to maintain their health still do. Occasionally people will say, well, Pastor, how often should I go to church? Why do I need to tithe? I taught confirmation a couple of weeks ago. Pastor Garrett was in here teaching and and I was over there and he's often over there when I'm here. Just because you don't see us doesn't mean we're not doing something somewhere. Um, And I remember after I taught on the Lord's Supper that day, uh, there were 7th and 8th grade people there and also their their parents were there with them uh, learning alongside. And that's a wonderful thing. Room was full of people. And a mom came up and said, well, my son who's in 7th grade has just heard your instruction on the Lord's Supper and he understands it well. Uh, Now that he's completed this exercise, can he take communion? And I said, I'd love for your son to take communion. It's not about rules here. I, I said, although I think you ought to clear that with, uh, with the leaders of this program. But if you're asking because you want to avoid bringing him up here for eighth grade instruction, you know, because he's already able to receive the Lord's Supper, then I'd say, you got your head on wrong. You know, you should maximize your child's religious education, not minimize your child's religious education. I think that's about worship, too. Yeah, you don't, you don't have to worship. 
every week. You know, you can live with other values. You don't have to tithe. You don't have to pray. You don't have to be in Bible study. But why would you not? Why would you not want to maximize the value of God in your life and all the blessings that are commensurate with that instead of minimizing? You know, when we ask that question, when we think that way, you know, why do we have to fast? Why do we have to pray? Why do we have to study? You know, why do we have to be in church? Because God has so much to give you. It's not to please him. It's not to find favor with him. It's because this is the key to the abundant life that God wishes you to have. Once you have achieved health, it's important that you maintain health. And then notice, too, that the cure is always patient appropriate. You know, you don't sew a new patch on an old garment, and you don't put fresh wine into old wine. There were new garments, there were old garments, there were new wines, and there were uh, old wines. There's a story in the Bible that illustrates the point that I think Jesus is making by the telling of these stories. It's, it's Peter and John. When you think about comparing uh, yourself to other, and, and uh, you know, why does not one expectation of God apply to all because we're all different. Jesus, after his uh, death and after his resurrection, told his disciples to go to Galilee and wait for him there, and he would show up. And so they were up there, and they became impatient. They went out to start fishing, and then they saw Jesus on the shore, and, and they, they hurried to come in and be with him. Peter even dove in the water and swam to be with him. And Peter, who had denied Jesus three times, you remember, uh, on the night that the rooster crowed, uh, Jesus wanted to restore him, and so he took a private walk with him on the beach, and, and he personally ministered to him and restored him. And then he said to Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Strange words. Jesus said this to indicate what kind of death that Peter was going to die. You're going to be in prison. One day somebody's going to come and put a robe on you. They're going to tie your hands and they're going to take you to your crucifixion. Jesus said this to indicate what kind of death he would die to glorify God. And then he said, follow me. Peter turned, you know, to take the pressure off of himself. He saw John was tagging along, you know, 20 feet behind them like a puppy. And he said, well, what about him? You know, how's he going to die? And Jesus said, if I want him to live until I return again, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't be concerned about sinful comparison. And don't demand that, you know, somebody else be treated the same way that you are treated. New Christians get treated differently than old Christians. You know, it always bugs me that people who are in the faith for a long, long time say, what about us? Why don't pay more attention to us? I say, because you should be the answer, not the, not the need. You know, the church is established to help reach out to the lost. We should, um, we should sacrifice our preferences for the sake of those who are far from God. And that's a pharisaical attitude. You know, why does he give so much time to sinners? What about us, those of us who are strong in our faith? Jesus said, I haven't come for those who are well. I've come for those who are sick. And if that's the attitude of Christ, how much more should it be the attitude of Christ's people? Jesus is a heart specialist. You know, when you think about the medical uh, illustration, that's what he is. You know, he's all about the heart. And he will minister to you according to your heart's needs. You know, will you allow the world standards or your human nature to weigh heavily and, and uh, depress you and, and, and oppress you? 
because of the critical nature of you know, our human condition and the critical nature of the world in which we live? Or will you receive your worth from the sacrifice of Jesus for you and his love for you? You know, what will drive you? Where will you find your identity? Uh, there's a, a famous painter in England in the mid-1800s, 1855, and I remembered his name when I came across this story because I remember one of his paintings. His name is Dante Rossetti. And, and the painting that he was working on when he died, I could, I could stare at it for a long time and never, never grow tired of it. It's called Found. It's just called Found. And it shows a country gentleman, and his uh, clothing is all pristine. He has a nice little hat on. He's got a wagon being pulled by a nice steed. And on the back of the wagon is a lamb that he's taking to market, and it's tied up. And, and he's off of his wagon, though, and he's leaning down to help a prostitute up. And uh, the story behind the picture is that it's a lost love of his. And he has found her. And he's in the process of restoring her. I think what a metaphor for the way Jesus is, you know, to restore us and not to dismiss us, not to be embarrassed by us, not to say, well, you, you, you've paid the price. You know, you've, you've made sinful decisions. Now, you know, sleep in the bed that you've made. It shows this man graciously helping this woman who used to be beautiful up and he's going to restore her to her former beauty. The reason I remember the story is because there's a, another story corresponding to Dante Rossetti uh, of an old man who came to him when he was a master painter and recognized in all of England. And he showed him some, some line drawings that he himself had done. And he asked if he thought there was any promise to them. And it says, uh, Rossetti told the old man gently as possible because he was kind. He said, the pictures are of little value and they demonstrate no great potential. He said, I'm sorry, but you just have to be honest about that. He said, well, that, that's okay. I understand. He said, let me show you some other pictures, though. And he showed him some other line drawings. And he goes, wow, these are different, man. These, these have huge potential. Are these the drawings of your son? Because I, I noticed a stronger hand, a younger man's hand uh, in these drawings. And he goes, no, those, those aren't my sons. They, too, are my work from 40 years ago. If I'd only met you then, I would not have become discouraged. And I can't help but think of what I might have become the power of encouragement, the power of seeing yourself as God sees you and not allowing the discouragement of the world, this, not that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, there are so many negative messages, and, and, and rightfully so, because I mess up. 